welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 44, recorded on October 22nd, 2019. CloudWatch detects the CloudPod as an anomaly. Very good. Yeah, thank you. I didn't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> First try, too. First try. Yes. Uh, hey, how's it going, Jonathan? It's good. It's been an interesting week so far. Yeah, it's a, it's a, been interesting. We've been uh, doing some interesting projects at work uh, that are really good, but uh, very busy. We are uh, missing Peter this evening. Uh, he's AWOL. We don't know where he's at, uh, but uh, we we have a show to record. The podcast must go on, so we're gonna we're gonna do this without Peter tonight. So that's a, I think it's a first for us, isn't it? Just two of us. I think so. Yeah, or maybe he's stuck in traffic. It is a Bay Area after all. Yeah, well, actually, I think maybe you had an emergency one time. And it was just Peter and I, but um, maybe we had a guest that time or something. I don't know. It worked out fine. Yep. Yep. It's all good. Um, yeah, I did. Uh, someone mentioned uh, on the Slack channel actually that uh, they had been listening to the show for a while and had not known that we have a Slack channel. So I thought I'd mention it in the intro instead of at the end. Uh, we do have a Slack channel. Uh, if you'd like to talk to Jonathan or Peter or I uh, at the cloudpod.net, uh, you can find a link to get a Slack invite to our Slack channel. Uh, and there's a, a bunch of lovely fellows there and ladies uh, who are all talking about cloud and talking to us. And uh, so we're always happy to have people join us uh, in the chat room. Uh, join us, introduce yourself in the announcements room, uh, and uh, just let us know what you think of the show, where you found us, and all kinds of good things like that, because it's, it's good information for us to have. And we'd love to engage with you, our audience. So uh, just keep that in mind. Yeah, it's it's so exciting to see the variety of people that we have and uh, and learn about how they how they found us. My still favorite is the shout out to the, uh, the investment bankers or the hedge fund guys in uh, in Europe. Uh, the, the, such a such an interesting uh, story there. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things you can find out on the chat room, uh, but you can't find out here on the show. So let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, we have some some sad news as our first story. Oracle's Mark Hurd, uh, ha- who was on medical leave as we talked about uh, right before Oracle Open World, uh, has died at the age of uh, sixty two. Uh, we briefly mentioned this uh, back then. Uh, he died on Friday, Friday October 18th, uh, and uh, Oracle family have not disclosed details of the medical leave nor the cause of death, but Larry did uh, post an, an, a note on uh, Mark's website, Larry Elson. Uh, it is with profound sad- sense of sadness and loss that I tell everyone here at Oracle that Mark Hurd passed away early this morning. Mark was my close and irreplaceable friend and trusted colleague. Oracle has lost a brilliant and beloved leader who personally touched the lives of so many of us during this decade at Oracle. All of us will miss Mark's keen mind and rare ability to analyze, simplify, and solve problems quickly. Some of us will miss his friendship and mentorship. I will miss his kindness and sense of humor. Mark leaves his beloved wife, Paula, two wonderful daughters for the joy of his life, and his much larger extended family here at Oracle who have come to love him. I know that many of us are inconsolable right now, but we are left with the memories and a sense of gratitude that we had the opportunity to get to know Mark, the opportunity to work with him, and become his friend. Larry Allison. Uh, and Ellison, uh, if you remember, uh, when he was fired by HP, said uh, the HP board just made the worst personnel decision since the idiots at Apple board fired Steve Jobs many years ago. So uh, Larry has always been a really uh, big fan of Mark and uh, really a big loss for the tech community as a whole. And, uh, you know, but my apologies to the family and, and uh, the morning, uh, his friends and everything. That's uh, sad news. Yeah, as much as we, we kind of tease Oracle, I think most of that's aimed at uh, Larry Ellison. And I think Marco did a fantastic job. And it's uh, it kind of saddens me to think that somebody like him has, has dedicated so much of his life to a lot of very good work, only to, to kind of have his what, what should have been his uh, enjoyable retirement someplace uh, taken from him. Yeah, it's too bad. Well, let's uh, move on to uh, other bad news. Well, this isn't really bad news for the most of the industry, but IBM, it's bad news. Uh, apparently, despite the Red Hat acquisition, IBM has missed their revenue target. 
Uh, IBM Corp missed Wall Street estimates on revenues during its third quarter. Uh, revenues for the quarter were down, was $18 billion, uh, down 3% year-over-year, and below the Wall Street estimate of $18.22 billion. Uh, the Red Hat acquisition did provide some boost to the earnings, which saw revenue grow 6.4% to $5.28 billion. Uh, and Ramadi, the CEO, said, Our results demonstrate that clients see IBM and Red Hat as a powerful combination, and they trust us to provide them with the open hybrid cloud technology, innovation, and industry expertise to help them shift their mission-critical workloads to the cloud. Patrick Moorhead of More Insights and Strategy told Silicon Angle, uh, anyone who thought there was going to be an instant value between Red Hat and IBM was being too optimistic. I think we're looking at a few quarters like this until we see synergistic benefits. Uh, I actually don't know if it's a few quarters. It might be years before they really see synergistic benefits. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I was I was kind of hoping they would have had something in the bag or something prepared, you know, ready to ready to roll out to wow us with this new partnership. And a bit disappointed they haven't had anything so far. I actually don't know when IBM does big conferences or things like that. Is that maybe that's where that's all going to come out in, in the future? Hmm. Let's see. Okay, I'm googling real live time on the on the on the podcast, which doesn't help anything. <laughs> uh, so apparently they have IBM Think, uh, which will be in May uh, in San Francisco. So maybe uh, that's where the big announcements will be coming uh, from the partnership. Excellent. Yeah, I'm surprised actually. IBM haven't taken more of a front seat in the in the progress of AI, especially given their their history with. Uh, Watson. Isn't Watson kind of the beginning of, um, of AI and machine learning in a big way? Like, I mean, it, it seems like they kind of founded the industry and then they've, you know, they do offer Watson as a service. So they, they sort of have some stuff in that area. I think it's probably one of the closest things we've got to what I'm going to consider real AI versus what, what really, I think most people use the term AI when they really mean sort of a complex statistical analysis or in predictions based on uh, learning patterns, which perhaps people couldn't see. But I mean, the, the fact that Watson was was so good even five years ago at, at um, answering questions he didn't know about, you know, unprepared unprepared questions was uh, was, was pretty cool. I, I wish we'd seen more from them around that. Maybe they're working on it. I know they're certainly working on quantum computing and uh, experimenting with some of that stuff. But yeah, I'd like to think they, they've got some cool stuff in the pipeline. It'll be very interesting to see what they, what they have up their sleeves. It's interesting, actually, as you were talking, uh, I noticed that there's also a Red Hat Summit uh, April uh, 27th through the 29th, uh, followed uh, the week later by the IBM Summit, uh, also in San Francisco. So I guess that's some synergies uh, in conference budgets. <laughs> so there you go, some, some cost synergies uh, from IBM and uh, Red Hat. Wow, that Red Hat Summit, that's, that's uh, more expensive than reInvent. <laughs> really? I've oh, yeah. never been. I've, I've never had interest. It's uh, $1,900. Well, I mean, people, I saw someone complain the other day about how expensive reInvent was. And they were like, it's like $4,600. And I was like, what are you talking about? And, and, you know, by the time you add hotel and airfare and all that in that week, it's a, it is a bit pricey. But Oh, yeah. I mean, that does include the hotel. And that's in Boston as well this year, which is un- not known for uh, its cheap accommodation. Yeah, definitely. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Defense Secretary Mark Esper, uh, who's the U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, has removed himself from the review process of the Jedi contract uh, after it was revealed that one of his sons is working at one-time bidder IBM Corp. Uh, and 
Deputy Secretary David Norquist said, Out of abundance of caution to avoid any concerns regarding his impartiality, Secretary Esper has delegated decision-making concerns of the Judd Cloud Program to Deputy Secretary Norquist. The Judd procurement will continue to move to selection through the normal acquisition process run by the career acquisition professionals. Uh, so that's, uh, that's interesting. Uh, I was kind of shocked by this story. Then I found out that you know IBM released a statement in the article saying, uh, Secretary Esper's son has, only, has been a digital strategy consultant with IBM Services only since February. Uh, so I, I think IBM was eliminated by that point. Uh, and uh, according to IBM, his role is unrelated to IBM's pursuit of Jedi. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. But I, I, I feel like with um, Oracle going after their competitors in this, uh, even even a conflict of interest which, which didn't serve Google or AWS is, is probably something they would have picked on uh, in court. So it's probably, it's probably a good thing that he's kind of ducked out the decision process. I'm still hoping that you know they might award this contract this year. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I'm not confident, but I hope they will. Yeah, it's taking take a long time. Well, I mean, it got del- it was supposed to be announced in June and then got delayed because of the politics of the of the nation. So that that is what it is. Uh, well, moving on to uh, AWS, uh, they have announced Amazon CloudWatch anomaly detection. Uh, of course, CloudWatch has been around for quite a while, uh, released in early 2009, so apparently it's uh, nine, uh, 10 years old. Uh, Jonathan, happy birthday to CloudWatch. <laughs> uh, and you can use, use this to build sophisticated, scalable, and robust web apps for AWS. Unfortunately, of course, setting CloudWatch alarms can be a bit of an art, uh, more than a science. And so if you want to catch things early, uh, you set the threshold early, but then that might end up being false positives. And to address this, AWS is releasing the anomaly detection. Uh, powered by machine learning and building over a decade of experience, CloudWatch anomaly detection has its roots in over 12,000 internal models uh, and will allow you to avoid manual configurations and experimentations and can be used in conjunction with any standard or custom CloudWatch metric that is trend or pattern-based. Uh, I actually looked at the instructions how to set this up. It's pretty simple. Uh, you just go into your CloudWatch uh, dashboard, find a chart that like CPU utilization, there's a little new wave icon you click on and it'll give you a kind of a default view um, to kind of show you what's the normal upper and lower watermarks and what would be outside of that watermark. And then you can uh, click the edit button and you can make adjustments to exclude periods of time. Uh, if you're using it for something like batch processing in the middle of the night and you want it to be 100%, but you don't want that to be uh, included in your model, you can exclude those type of things. Uh, and you can create alerts based on all of this very, very simple in a few clicks. Um, there are a few things to keep in mind, of course, uh, suitable metrics. Uh, so if it is not a, a pattern or a trend-based metric, this will not work uh, for you very well. And then yeah, updates for the model are done every five minutes uh, based on the last metric data. And the one-time events uh, for things like Black Friday or holiday shopping seasons um, are not easily to predict and will not work typically in this model. Uh, and in the first, I think I've seen, they are announcing API, CLI, and CloudFormation um, support day one. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully they, they heard the criticism about lack of CloudFormation support because it must be, must be an embarrassment to have Terraform rollout support for their, their new services before they do it themselves. But yeah, there's definitely some magic around um, CloudWatch metrics and, and uh, dimensions and getting that reporting to work. It's, uh, it's, it's less than transparent, I think. But yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, I hope we can use it to easily disable alerts during maintenance times and things like that when, uh, when, we, when we expect an outage, but we don't want people to get paged. Uh, well, another, uh, I just kept forgetting all these amazing uh, reInvent announcements that haven't shipped that, you know, they come back and I'm like, oh yeah, that was announced at reInvent. The uh, Amazon Relational Database Services uh, on VMware has finally shipped. This allows you to run Amazon RDS uh, on-premise in your VMware environment. Uh, the service is launching with support for Microsoft SQL Server, PostgreSQL, and MySQL. Uh, there are several prerequisites. Uh, you must be running vSphere uh, 6.5 or higher. 
Uh, you must allow outbound connectivity to AWS's public endpoints, and each cluster must have at least uh, 24 vCPUs, 24 uh, gigabytes of memory, and 180 gigs of storage uh, from the on-premise management components of RDS. Uh, there are three classes of RDS instances you can run on this, the general purpose, memory optimized, and compute optimized. Uh, but I have to tell you, Jonathan, this one, this one isn't cheap. <laughs> so not only do you have to uh, uh. buy the hardware, <laughs> you have to pay for the, uh, the bandwidth to and from the data center to support this uh, and the licensing, but you have to, well, I don't, I think the licensing might be included, uh, but you actually pay them an hourly fee on top of that. And this thing starts at, uh, for one vCPU and four gigs of memory for MySQL, it'll cost you $62.49, Jonathan. And for a reasonable database server, which is the eight vCPU with 32 gigs of memory, that's at least $500. Is this uh, monthly? Monthly, yes. Whoa. And the most expensive uh, is the memory optimized with 96 vCPU and 768 gigs of memory uh, will cost you a smooth $12,000 per month uh, for Amazon to just manage your database for you in your environment. So. That's that's just mind-blowing. I mean, if, if it's not even their hardware, the, this, mm -hmm. the, 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 wow. <laughs> Hang on, let me sit down. I mean, <laughs> the, the, uh, the escalation of that cost, I mean, I can't imagine that it's significantly more work to do to, to manage a slightly bigger instance or a slightly smaller instance. So um, that seems uh, kind of price gouging, really. Yeah, well, and, and you know, if this was SQL Server and include your SQL Server licensing, um, maybe it'd be okay. But like, this is just my SQL pricing. I didn't even I didn't even click on the SQL Server pricing tab because I was afraid to. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I was uh, I was a little shocked at how expensive this actually was based on what it is and and what it can or can't provide to you. Um, it, there's some interesting things though, like you create your own private AZ in your data center that you had to set up, and there's a couple of interesting things. Um, in general about it, but it is good to see um, this feature ship. But I assume this is a this is priced prohibitively on purpose to keep people from massively adopting it <laughs> for a yeah. little while, or they get it proved out. Well, I just think they can announce ninety eight percent cost savings at reInvent in a few weeks' time. <laughs> yeah, but wow, that's expensive. Okay, wow. <laughs> uh, so get so get this on the. Uh, so I had to click on the Microsoft SQL site. So I said it, and uh, I felt I felt bad for the listeners. But uh, customers using Microsoft SQL Server must provide their own media and license for Microsoft SQL Server. So not only, now, okay, so so you're paying for the VMware infrastructure, you're paying for the bandwidth in your data center and the storage, and you're paying for the Microsoft license. And for that privilege, uh, the price, and these are hourly prices, I didn't cover these two, but for a one vCPU, four gig box, it's 25 cents an hour. Okay. Which, if my quick math here, is $200 a month. The... 96 vCPU, 384 gigabyte box is $24.38 per hour. $24 and how much? 38 cents. Wow, yes. that's that's, uh, <clears throat> that's almost $18,000. <laughs> that, that is over $18,000. Mm. And for the, the memory optimized, which is the most expensive option you can get on all of these, uh, for 96 vCPU and 768 gigs of RAM, is $36.57 an hour. And they're not including licenses in this. You paid for your own license. <laughs> so you, you're welcome. You could... Um... Oh, you you could hire a team of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, so that's a that's a thirty thousand dollars to have a managed RDS database cluster um, in your account. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they really don't want people to use this. It's not for the faint of heart, and it's definitely something that you should consider before uh, before jumping into this one. But I'm glad they're doing it. I think it is an interesting use case. I just, wow, those prices. Oof. Oh well, I can understand why they don't just refer people to. I mean, RDS have, has its advantages, I guess, but. Most of those are that somebody else manages the hardware and everything else, and the uptime and the power and the and the internet connectivity. But 
I'm surprised they don't just refer people to partners for managing uh, databases. It would seem to be easier to use a company uh, that does manage database services than to, to pay for this, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I haven't bought those services yet. Maybe they're expensive as well. Mm. Uh, this does also support uh, the RDS console, the RDS CLI, and the RDS APIs, uh, so that's nice. You get the same thing. Uh, and the VMware stuff is, it's a little bit of a setup process, I will admit. <laughs> Even Jeff Barr in his blog post says, uh, I'm not going to detail all the steps because it's complicated. Uh, but, you know, the summary of it is, you know, you're creating networks, you're creating uh, special accounts for this, uh, you're creating outbound internet access through a vSphere cluster. So there's quite a bit of set setup process to get this initially set up. But then once you have it, it it's, should be just clicks in the console just like normal. Uh, so there was a, a great blog post by Claire Ligori. Um, she's a pretty active AWS blogger uh, and Twitter user uh, in the industry. I think she's a principal engineer, if I remember correctly, or a um, st senior staff or something. Uh, I should probably know that, but I don't. So I apologize to Claire if she's listening. Uh, but she wrote a great blog post, Containers and Infrastructure's Code, like Peanut Butter and Jelly uh, is the name of the post. And she you know, gives you a lot of examples of how to use Infrastructure's Code uh, and tools like CloudFormation and Terraform to enable teams to describe and automate provisioning and cloud infra resources, uh, including container-related resources like ECS and EKS. Um, you know, she talks about how uh, applications are fully contained in, a, in an, a container, which we all know. And she later goes on to talk about a couple of things that are new to me, and I thought that's the reason why we're highlighting this article. Uh, the first is uh, what she calls the next phase, uh, which is architecture as code. And to elaborate on this, they actually released a GitHub uh, repo called the AWS CDK ECS Patterns that demonstrates this architecting as code concept. And so she goes on to talk about, uh, you know, typically an architect draws a lot of boxes on a board with different lines, and this is a way to basically articulate that, but in a code-type uh, format, and then use that to actually build out your infrastructure. Um, they've also written a public proposal uh, for their plans for a few ECS CLI tools designed around architecture as code model. Uh, and they're actually accepting feedback right now. So if this is something that kind of interests you as an architect or something you want to check out, um, definitely check out this blog post and then follow that uh, link to her uh, public proposal for their CLI tool, and you can help contribute to this. It sounds really interesting. Oh, cool. So essentially it's going to take the pain out of orchestrating microservice deployments. Yeah, that's that's basically what you're trying to do, which is uh, really great. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 what I'd like to see even more so is for people to stop using the word infrastructure, I think. Um, Really, really, what we consider infrastructure in, in the data center is not the infrastructure in the in the cloud. Those things are just services that we use, that, you know, that we leverage for our applications. So, I think we should start considering those part of the applications and part of the architecture rather than infrastructure. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, well, Amazon has uh, joined the Java Community Process, or JCP for short. Uh, Amazon you know, has been a big user of Java with over thousands of Java production services on various versions of JDKs, uh, 8 and 11. Uh, as you know, we talked about on the show, they invested in Java with uh, Coretto, which is their open distribution of OpenJDK. Uh, and they're providing upstream code back to the OpenJDK distros, as well as the Java Vulnerability Group. Uh, then at OSCON this year, they announced the Amazon Credo Crypto Provider uh, to accelerate crypto operations for all OpenJDK distributions, um, which is a purpose-built module for that, that one function, which is really great. I think we talked about it maybe in the lightning round before. But now they're happy to announce the Amazon has joined the Java Community Process, which is the Java Platform Standards Organization, uh, and the JCP is a repo for all Java specifications. Uh, and Amazon is excited to participate and contribute even more to the Java and open source communities. So, you know, whether, whether screwing over everyone else like Elasticsearch, they're definitely helping core, core open 
source projects like Java, which is really great. I guess they had to do this to get their crypto provider sort of publicly accepted into OpenJDK, but the performance improvements from their crypto provider is, is uh, mind-blowing, really. Like, uh, to think that uh, minor code changes could yield like 10 or 15% reductions in CPU usage is uh, is really cool. Uh, that's actually a great article. If you're into crypto, um, I think Colm has a, a Twitter thread or a blog post that he wrote about this on the security blog. Um, definitely really interesting if you're into those type of things uh, to read his take on it. Yep. Uh, Google has made the 100 gigabits uh, dedicated interconnect and the HA VPN general available uh, today. Uh, they're both announced the next uh, 2019. Uh, with HAVPN, you can connect your on-premises deployment to a Google Cloud VPC with industry-leading SLA of 99.99% uptime catered to your mission-critical workloads. And the new interconnect, the 100 gigabit dedicated interconnect, uh, allows you to provide 10 times the capacity of our previous interconnect offering and can be aligned into link aggregation groups to bring massive amounts of bandwidth uh, directly to the Google Cloud from your on-premise data centers. Uh, so that's a... Uh, those are probably also very expensive, uh, but very nice to have uh, if you have those mission-critical needs and bandwidth requirements. It's all right. I'm still sitting down following the RDS cost thing, so I, I didn't see any price for this, but I, I imagine if you have to ask, you can't afford it. <laughs> and that may be very true. <laughs> also, Google's now seeing uh, the full support of SQL Server for Cloud SQL. Uh, as they say, leave no database behind with Cloud SQL for SQL Server, which is a redundancy for the redundancy department of SQL. Uh, this, was a, this is a beta launch and available to all customers today. And highlights of the Cloud SQL for SQL Server are, uh, of course, compatibility, as this is a full SQL Server version uh, that supports the SQL Server Management Studio, a uh, flexible backup schedule for automatic daily backups or to run them on demand. Uh, they have scalability to enable the automatic storage increase configuration, and Cloud SQL will add storage capacity whenever you approach the limit, and easily scale up your customized machines, memory, and processor cores as necessary. Uh, there is built-in high availability with the... Uh, enabled for all additions to singularly replicate data to each zone regionally uh, through persistent disk. And there are some new features coming soon, including Active Directory integration, read replicas, expanded machine types, and online migration tools. Uh, so again, if you're doing SQL Server, uh, you can now have a uh, managed service offering for you on Google. Wow. That's, let's hope they offer this uh, in the private data center too. But <laughs> <laughs> they can put it on the, uh, or Anthos, sorry, Anthos. Anthos. Well, yeah. yeah. Been a long day. Sorry. <laughs> lots of A's. Lots of A's. I wonder if they run this on on Windows, whether they're really on Linux. They don't mention that, I don't think, in the article. I mean, if I was building a native cloud service that I want to have managed, I'd probably do it on Linux so I can take advantage of all the great uh, open source tools for configuration management. I haven't ever really looked into Cloud SQL uh, or how it compares to RDS, really. Is, do, do they provide as much um, management as, as uh, RDS? Yeah, very similar. Managed backups, managed scaling, failover. Uh, you know, they use the same type of CNAME type mechanism that they do on uh, AWS and Azure. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a fully managed RDS-like database service. Uh, I think it's only supported MySQL and Postgres to date, uh, so this is nice to expand this out to SQL Server as well. Yeah, cool. Yep, speaking of SQL Server, let's move on to uh, Azure. Uh, Azure has unveiled two open source projects for building cloud and edge applications. Uh, the first one is the Open Application Model, a specification for building cloud-native apps on Kubernetes. Uh, the OAM is intended to simplify the development and deployment of apps managed by Kubernetes, which everyone's trying to do, so thanks Microsoft for doing it too, is a specification for describing applications to show the app is separated from how it is deployed and managed. Interestingly, Microsoft said it had to work closely with Alibaba Cloud on OAM because they realized that open source standards won't be successful without the buy-in of other key players in the market. Yeah, and Alibaba is certainly lined up to be a huge competitor for Azure, I would think. And I feel like they're just sort of sitting in the sidelines waiting to uh, to pounce on these top three 
providers right now. Well, I mean, Alibaba is the biggest uh, cloud you can get in China. So yeah. Microsoft's cloud and AWS's cloud is, is very small compared to what Alibaba is doing. So it makes sense that this partnership it could become much deeper over time. Something to what they done with Oracle Cloud, um, that make it really interesting for several reasons. Uh, the second open source tool they announced is a tool called Dapper. Uh, it's a portable event-driven runtime for building microservice-based apps that can run in the cloud and on edge devices. Uh, it runs on any infrastructure as long as it supports Kubernetes and supports all programming languages and developer frameworks. Uh, it can be accessed by standard HTTP or gRPC programming interfaces, and the hope is to enable developers to build microservice applications that can run on both the cloud and the edge with no code changes. We talked about this earlier, but I, I kind of feel like the edge is part of the cloud, it's just the edge of the cloud, so to differentiate between those two is slightly strange, unless, unless they're kind of including... Um, other mobile devices or IoT devices as as part of the edge. I don't know, but um, it's 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 very Lambda-like or at least very um, Firecracker-like. So mm-hmm. it's it's a bit of a, a Me Too thing, I think. Yeah, it definitely is. It'd be interesting to see if um, you know, we have Lambda on the edge and, and different edge technologies on the CDN side. It'd be interesting to see if you start seeing containers on the edge in some some serious way with like uh, Fargate. The post of the edge is really just to get stuff slightly closer to the to the consumers. So yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's supposed to be building enough data centers. Everything's at the edge. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, you know, soon you'll have uh, with your Amazon Alexa to also include a you know Amazon EC2 endpoint in your house. So that's how they'll, they'll solve this problem. But actually, speaking of that, um, total total tangent. But the new Google Home devices, the Nest the Nest devices, since they're rebranded, uh, now include a lot more compute power. Uh, and uh, tensor cores so that they can move a lot of the processing to to uh, your edge <laughs> Lovely. Uh, to provide to provide uh, faster response times and, and do more compute um, at your cost so presumably not not at their cost well i mean they'll probably charge you for both that's what that's the amazon model for rds so <laughs> why not i wonder if i mean it'd be interesting uh, you start deploying millions or tens of millions of these these devices it's uh it's sort of getting into the skynet realm really <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, indeed it is. Well, it's just time for a new Terminator movie. Announcing the uh, general availability of larger, more powerful standard file shares for Azure files. Uh, you know, I I do have to say before we get into this that I need a I need a very comprehensive chart of all the storage options on Azure. I'm not sure I can keep this straight much longer. <laughs> uh, so you, I might I might need you to do work your Google Sheets magic on to uh, to produce some spreadsheets. I, I can try. I don't know if it supports more than you know three or four different dimensions <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's um, it's kind of mind blowing really more than understanding the different services i just like to understand why they haven't converged these into some some you know several sensible offerings well this this new one um is for workloads with la- that are latency sensitive and require a high level of performance uh, and so you should consider the azure files premium tier uh, Azure Files is the GA announcement, as you mentioned, since I kind of jumped to the gun here. But Azure Files is a secure, fully managed public cloud file storage with a full range of data redundancy options and hybrid capabilities using Azure File Sync. Uh, with this release of larger file shares, a single standard file share and general purpose account can now support up to 100 terabytes of capacity, 10,000 IOPS, and 300 megabits per second of throughput. Uh, since the preview was announced a few months back, uh, you can now uh, there have been several enhancements, including the ability to upgrade existing general purpose storage accounts and existing file shares. Ability to opt in for larger file shares at storage account instead of a subscription level, expanded regional coverage, support for both locally redundant and zonal redundant storage, and improvements in the performance and scale of sync to work better with larger file shares. So, presumably, I mean, not to sound too critical, but 10,000 IOPS and 300 mega, megabits a second disk is kind of uh, what my NAS at home can do. So, it seems like they're, they're providing 
huge capacity but with fairly crappy performance and I think they're actually directing you away from this service. That's the standard file share but the premium <laughs> tier you know, will give you the much, much faster so when this doesn't perform for you they'll just charge you more money and then it'll work. It's, it's, where, it's the classic example of throw more hardware at the problem. Yes, yes, more memory, yes. more more compute, that solves everything. It solves all problems. Hmm. All right, uh, well, Azure API uh, for FUR uh, has moved to general availability. Uh, of course, FUR is the fast healthcare interoperability resource. Uh, this is uh, Microsoft becoming now the first cloud with a fully managed first-party service to ingest, persist, and manage healthcare data in the native FUR format. The Azure API for FUR is generally available to all Azure customers now. Uh, this is an industry standard uh, that has been being worked on for the last few years as a way to preferred, uh, sorry, as a preferred standard for exchanging and managing healthcare information in electronic format. Uh, with a new API, a developer, a researcher, a device maker, or anyone working with health data is empowered with a turnkey platform to provision a cloud-based deferred service in just a minute and begin securely managing PHI data in Azure. Uh, of course, this is a platform as a service, so customers can free up their operational resources and focus their development efforts on lighting up analytics, machine learning, and actual intelligence across their health data. Uh, Professor Neil Sieber of the Chief Research Information Officer at Ghosh uh, had to say, we now have a unified API as a basis for designing, testing, and deploying the next generation of machine learning and digital services in the hospital for your young patients. This will also enable rapid and easier collaboration with our international pediatric hospital partners to share specialized tools to improve patient outcomes and experiences. Uh, there are several key features for the uh, API for FUR. Uh, first of all, is provisioning and start running an enterprise-grade managed first service in just a few minutes, as I mentioned. Uh, support for the R3 and R4 of the first standard. Uh, Role-based access control, allowing you to manage access to your data at scale. Audit log tracking for access, creation, modification, and reads within each data store. Secure compliance in the cloud with ISO 27001 uh, 2013 certification. Supports HIPAA and GDPR and built on the HITRUST certified Azure platform. And it's globally availability and protection of your data with multi-region failover and smart on fur functionality. So there you go. If you're in the healthcare business, this is really great. Yeah, I remember um, I, I kind of started working in, in healthcare IT a, a long time ago, around about the the dawn of um, the electronic health record. And it sounded like a great idea at the time. Uh, but then there were so many different competing companies providing those services. You know, they, they all bid for, for contracts with various healthcare companies throughout the world that nothing nothing was uh, interchangeable and it became very painful to to do any kind of studies or you know if patient moves house to a different different region hospitals no longer have this this record which we were promised was going to be portable and so this this is it's really welcome i think and it's interesting that the the people who designed the standard didn't write any software you know it, it didn't come from any of the existing um, healthcare software companies it was uh, independently created by the people who want to use this to gather data and to exchange data with with each other and partners so it's um it's pretty cool so really they're trying to call out um in in the announcement for for, for v4 what they really want is input now to to build services and uh, kind of software around it to use it everything you just talked about is definitely a big problem um you know the ability to have shareable and portable health records has been a promise for i don't know almost a decade or two now yeah um, you know, I remember Microsoft Health and Google Health and all these services that had this big promise to do something, and they didn't have a standard like this to really build on, and they all kind of uh, fizzled out and died, unfortunately. So it's nice to see that the technology is finally figuring out how to do this the right way, and maybe we can get some really cool solutions sometime in the future in healthcare. I, I hope so, and I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that this, this helps uh, enable kind of the next generation of, of um sort of analytics and perhaps even AI around patient care because one of the, one of the problems is is uh, explaining how 
you know the reasons behind your decisions and having data available from uh, through APIs like this will, will really help justify uh, treatment outcomes for patients. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, that's it for the new news this week. Uh, so without Peter, we're not going to score the lightning round this week. And uh, Jonathan and I will take turns uh, reading uh, through these. And uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's a new new experiment. So <laughs> I'll let you go first. Okay. AWS IoT things. Um, let me start that again. <laughs> this is hard. Sure, great start. Uh, this is this is hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's harder than it looks. Harder than it sounds. Whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> AWS IoT things graph now provides workflow monitoring with AWS CloudWatch. I definitely want to watch my things. I guess. Got to keep your eye on the things. Amazon CloudWatch now sends an alarm state change events to Amazon EventBridge. It's great, but I really hope we don't get an announcement for every single uh, data source that can now feed into EventBridge. Ooh, does this mean we should XNA any EventBridge additions in the lightning round? I don't know. Maybe maybe we can set up a CloudWatch alarm that just tells us when there's a new integration with EventBridge and, and just ignore them. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we uh, for those outside, we, we've made a, a rule that basically if it's a general availability announcement of uptime or a you know, new regional availability, we won't typically talk about on the show uh, just because we would spend most of the show talking about new regions that have one feature every week <laughs> and you'd be like great they, they added another region so yeah we uh, we kind of cut those out but anything that's kind of repetitive like that we've we sort of removed from the show all right amazon fsx for windows file server now enables administrators to restore activity on files locked by inactive users uh, so if you didn't get your files off before you laid that guy off now you can get them off the system so it's good <laughs> you definitely amazon efs now in the ec2 launch instance wizard why because they want to support bad practices, Jonathan. Okay. It seems like a blurring of the lines there. Yeah, you, you basically can create an EFS, and then it'll automatically get attached to your EC2 instance. And then uh, your users who don't understand what the difference between the two drives is will just you know dump data onto the wrong drive, and things will go wrong. So there you go. <laughs> that sounds expensive. Sounds very expensive. <laughs> Amazon EC2 hibernation is now available on Windows, and we have so many comments about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, only if you don't want to go over 16 gigs of memory. That's that's the key message there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so strange that the, the discrepancy between the, the RAM supported by Windows instances and Linux machines. I mean, we know that you can hibernate larger instances of Windows, but I mean, you, you can hibernate up to 150 gig or something like that of, of um, on a Linux instance, but only 16 of Windows. It's it's a little strange. Yeah, that's a low number. I mean, I I would say that it only supports. Um, three or four of each instance type in the different groupings. It's just, it's not a very full-featured, uh, if you only can do 16 gigs of memory. So it's, that's a weird one. Uh, I think they were, someone demanded they do it, but uh, it's not really ready for prime time. It has some advantages. I, I, I'd love to use this to spin up Windows machines, which are basically already already booted up, already done all their checks and everything else, and the software is loaded, ready to go. It, it could really speed up auto-scaling, because right now, auto-scaling for Windows is, is chronically slow. Um, but don't forget that you're paying for this extra space on your disk, whether you hibernate it or not. And in the case of uh, Windows instances, that's only going to be 16 gig of storage. But in the case of these large Linux instances, you, you're paying for a, potentially up to 150 gig of uh, EBS volume, which you can't use for anything else. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can now expand your Amazon MSK clusters and deploy new clusters across two availability zones. So, I mean, really, that's, that's kind of required for cloud best practices, so... MSK has been a really weird um, product. Like, it was only available in one region, it was only available in one AZ for a while, now it could do two. Like, it's a service that needs to be massively scaled and massively distributed to be effective, but... Uh, I think the complexity of Zookeeper is uh, killing them. 
<laughs> That's how I would see it. Yeah, it's, it seems like a difficult one to try and make work nicely in the cloud, especially as there's not a single endpoint you connect to. You, you sort of connect to a broker, which tells you where to go for for your queue, and that's that's make, makes it hard to use private link or anything else to to uh, connect to these services. So it must be it must be quite painful for them. There must be a very good reason why they've done this. Yeah, yeah. especially because they already fixed all these problems with Kinesis. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> ding ding ding. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot whose turn is it? Yours. Um, yeah, it's me. Amazon Neptune now supports SparkQL 1.1 federated queries. Sparkly. I can just see the the, uh, the, the magic meme coming up now. Yes, indeed. Magic. <laughs> uh, Amazon Neptune now supports streams to capture graph data changes. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, no one's heard of Neptune for two years since they, they you know, announced that reinvent. So, yeah, two, two features every two years is great. So. Just the, uh, the occasional reminder that the service exists. AWS code pipeline adds execution visual. <laughs> yeah, see, I didn't even drink this time. <laughs> AWS. I'm going to have to add like a breathalyzer to the microphone or something before we start recording. Uh, AWS code pipeline adds execution visualization to pipeline execution history. Okay, sounds great. I guess. <laughs> yeah, but this is. The code pipeline's been great when it works, but if you need to go in and debug something that didn't work, it's been it's been horrendous to dig through logs in various places, and, and they're hard to correlate. And and having a visualization is is is, is pretty cool. Finally. So now you can now you can see where your data has been lost yep. in the process versus guessing. Yeah, it's, it, it oh, make, makes good. for nicer PowerPoint presentations when you have to explain why stuff doesn't work. Oh, good. That's great. Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility. Adds additional aggregation pipeline capabilities, including uh, dollar sign lookups. I think they really need to rename their their service to Amazon Document DB with some MongoDB compatibility because a lot of these things have been missing for a long time. I'm not sure why they launched so soon uh, without some of these missing pieces because it's really been. I think it's a bit of a a bit misleading to claim compatibility with missing features. Yeah, it's a little weird. I, I you know, I'd like to talk to somebody who's actually using Document DB. Uh, who came from Mongo? I, I'm curious what that actually means and and how difficult it actually was to make that transition, especially with missing things like dollar sign lookups. Seems like something you'd want. Yeah, the aggregation tools been were missing originally from DocumentDB, and that was one of their early criticisms. It just reminds me of VLOOKUP and HLOOKUP in Excel, which is horrendous. <laughs> Where are we? Amazon letter. AWS Managed Services. That's AMS. Simplifies ServiceNow integration. There's nothing simple about ServiceNow. Or integrating it. No, it's 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 painful to require partners to uh, to have ways to integrate with the Amazon support services. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, ServiceNow Sana, uh, which will be their competitor to Hana because they did hire uh, Bill McDermott as their CEO uh, this week. I hope their ability to execute uh, doesn't head the same way as uh, SAP's. <laughs> Indeed, well, I mean it'll only require you to run. You know, 155 terabytes memory boxes to make ServiceNow work properly that way. So it's, there you go. Amazon Managed Blockchain now supports Amazon CloudWatch metrics for peer nodes. I don't know. I mean, I don't know who's going to use I mean, that. it seems like a, a managed service for a blockchain. You'd, you'd want to monitor peer nodes. So and I guess I'm glad they had a day one feature finally, you know, six months after they released this feature. Finally, Amazon API Gateway now supports wildcard custom domain names and the fanfares 
ring out and you know and the ticker tape ticker tape falls from the sky <laughs> and we and we we wish they just had this three years ago when we really really needed it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, uh, several customers might not have moved to Kong or Apogee if this had been the thing. So there you go. <laughs> it really prevented us from providing a, a, a comprehensive single point of entry to our services because we, we couldn't wildcard things. And um, I think it was a really bad oversight. I, I think it was as well. Uh, that was interesting, Jonathan. We uh, we got through that relatively painlessly without Peter. Uh, maybe Peter wins, though, because uh, he's probably somewhere having a bunch of fun and Thanks for Jonathan for uh, being here this evening. It was a long day for us uh, at the day job, so it was uh, good to get on here and get this recorded, uh, and we can now go sleep. <laughs> so absolutely, very mentally draining. This, uh, this teamwork exercises. Yes, teamwork makes the dream work, Jonathan. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Uh, I had an alternate show title that I came up with as we were walking through one of these, and I, I don't know what it was. So must not have been that good. <laughs> All right. Well, again, uh, thanks for joining me, Peter. Or, well, not Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mean thanks for joining me, Peter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well uh, good night, everyone. Thanks a lot. See you, Justin.